Welcome back to the Major Journey Podcast. Today's special guest has spent years cultivating brands and telling stories, formerly in the mainstream digital media and marketing space with companies like Scripps and Autotrader prior to making the jump to the legal cannabis industry. Since the shift in late 2013, he has helped build big name industry brands like Weed Maps, The Cannabis, Green Bros, and Green Flower. He has had a strong focus on marketing and business development, taking these brands global. Our guest more recently brought his very knowledge and passion-first attitude to Grove Bags, where he's been tasked with growing the brand along with the company's footprint with an eye toward moving into emerging markets around the globe. As a cancer survivor and having grown up in Northern California, he has seen firsthand and embraced the benefits of cannabis and how it can be an integral part of a healthy lifestyle. Having spent the past several years speaking at expos and conventions, he enjoys connecting with other advocates who are interested in the different facets this blossoming industry has to offer. And so without further ado, Lance Lambert, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us. So Lance, you've been a busy guy. Uh, <laughs> why don't you kind of take us back? And I know I know, I gave a, a quick intro, but I always love to hear it from, from guests themselves. Can you take us back to your pre-cannabis days and sort of how that transition from, you know, more mainstream work happened and brought you over into the cannabis industry to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. It's, it goes back quite a ways, to be honest, because as you mentioned, you know, having grown up in Northern California, cannabis was always around, you know, mm -hmm. that's kind of an interesting thing of growing up in a place where it was the epicenter of both craft and culture. So having said that, it was not so much a part of my life when I was younger, except for, um, you know, it, it did help me. Uh, I'll just put simply, it helped me save up for college. <laughs> so I, I was a little involved when I was younger, but, but really my path did go into mainstream. You know, I came from a third generation of an automotive family. And so that was, uh, was something that was always a passion of mine as well. And that is what subsequently took me into digital media and marketing back in the early 2000s. Very much enjoyed it. Like you mentioned, worked for Scripps. Uh, for those who don't know, you know, they own HGTV, Food Network, DIY. So it was quite a fun time, you know, getting to focus on multiple categories above and beyond the one that, that I was so familiar with growing up. And uh, at one point in my career, I had my senior VP of operations and sales at Scripps move on to another company called DFM. Their flagship property was the Denver Post out in Denver. And uh, she saw a hero path for me there, just kind of bringing on some of the skills that I had honed and some of the successes I had working under her uh, during my time at Scripps. And it just so happened, another uh, former Scripps employee, Ricardo Baca, was uh, pitching a uh, opportunity that he felt was warranted for him to focus on in cannabis. And mm -hmm. so he came up with this name, The Cannabis, which I always thought was so clever. And that was launching right as I was coming on board with DFM. And so for the first few years of my career on the legal side, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was really in the, the background, you know, as a digital media ad operations director there. And so I was helping out Rick on the backside of it and then segued into uh, the GM role at the cannabis. And it was a phenomenal, it was is a really a disruptive site in a good way, because at that time, the only thing you had by way of news, short of the kind of popping up in mainstream was, you know, High Times, uh, you know, Dave Tran and the crew at Dope magazine, mm -hmm. you know, a few of those more culture centric uh, news outlets. And here, you know, Rick had this idea, which I, I fully encouraged and embraced 
to focus on the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, so we do articles on all these families that were moving their children up to Colorado to the legal medical and then turn adult use market uh, that were having grand mal seizures, epileptic seizures. So for medical reasons, this ties back to Charlotte and Charlotte's Web and you know that whole movement back in the the early teens. And so we're covering that, but we're also covering inaccuracy in measurements of THC in edibles by some companies. Because here, you know, Colorado was the first adult use market. We know medical mm-hmm. started here in my home state in California back in 96. But but really, that was the first time that people were experiencing it legally being able to walk in and purchase uh, without any sort of medical rec- uh, recommendation. So I was just really, I don't know, it it really spoke to me again, having grown up around the craft and the culture mm-hmm. and it never being quite as taboo as it was for some. And, and that was my segue. And I've never looked back. It was interesting. I, I left there, um, kind of pulled a bit of a Jerry Maguire, uh, just, just decided because the company, the parent company was kind of hedge fund and the, the way that they operated and demanded this 20% while why, and, you know, very challenging. Um, I, I felt that I wanted to go with a company that kind of supported the, the community and the industry a little bit more. But it's interesting because I had only been in the space for a few years. And within that first 24 hours of putting in my notice and, and the word getting out, I had, uh, you know, at the time, Matt Stang from High Times reach out, uh, JJ, the new business development VP at Weed Maps, reach out, and Andy Williams from uh, from SMN Technologies reach out. And I was really humbled because I didn't think I had made that much of an impact or an impression in the community and subsequent industry but uh, but that really opened my eyes. And I was like, okay, this is where I belong. When people are reaching out and saying, hey, we have a place for you. We have a job for you. We have That's an opportunity. Cool. That that was really cool. It was humbling, but it it really helped me understand, yeah, this is something that I have built a passion for. Um, like I said, it was a part of my life when I was younger, but it become a part of my life again. And uh, I haven't looked back. I've been in it for, you know, going on a decade here. And uh, it hasn't been the easiest. But it's been the most rewarding. And I think that's one thing that people need to factor into their lives. You know, sometimes the things that you're most passionate about or the things that bring you the most joy, they aren't the easiest things to do. They aren't that turnkey, you know, put, <clears throat> excuse me, a square peg in a square hole, you know, something monotonous or or just following the norm or, or working with a big Fortune 500 where everything's so excessively structured. Mm-hmm. Some people enjoy that. But for me, I always like a challenge and I always lean in. And, and that's what this industry really does it challenges everyone in any aspect <laughs> of the space you know so the rest is history i guess as you'd say that's really cool and i'm i'm interested i don't know that i've actually ever asked anybody this but you mentioned how fulfilling this industry is and how it can be a challenge at times but once you kind of you know cross the bridge once you get there it's just it's the best feeling in the world and i could totally relate but what i wanted to ask you lance was what for you personally, what is the most fulfilling part of being in the space? Because you've been in, in the industry now for about a little over 10 years, you mentioned, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what would you say is that that most fulfilling part for you? Uh, the most fulfilling for me is really leading with education. And it's something that, again, I'm, I'm fortunate in the network I have that people like to voice their opinion back to me. I think I'm uh, I recognize that I'm a very approachable person Well, people very, very much feel comfortable to share their thoughts and, and their ideologies with me. And that's one thing that uh, a person shared with me just a few months ago. They said, you know what, when it comes to something like terpenes, I've noticed you've always had that in, in your vernacular and in your, your talk points, no matter which company you're scaling up or working with. And, and I was like, wow, they're right. You know, back at Weed Maps, we had launched this whole educational series 
on learning about terpenes, these educational cards, these posters. I mean, this whole series that the dispensaries at the time, and keeping in mind, this was 16, 17. So still things were kind of coming into the norm. People were really appreciative of that. And then I found that carried on, you know, with my time at Bovid Edge, educating people on terpene preservation and then going on to Green Bros and Greenflower, you know, is always kind of coming back to this education, but that's what's been most rewarding for me. And it doesn't matter if it's a one-on-one conversation with my dental hygienist, like I had yesterday <laughs> about, about cannabis as she prepares to go to Europe on, on this trip with her friends and telling her what things are really like in, in, you know, markets like Amsterdam and what to look for and, and all the rest of it. Or if it's, you know, going in front of a hundred students, uh, which I'm going to be doing next Friday in LA and just cool. talking about the industry and the community and in the different facets and opportunities that exist. So I think the educational aspect is the most rewarding and just helping erase that stigma because a lot of us, I mean, myself, I'm a Gen Xer. So I grew up with the DARE program, which was um, a program started by Daryl Gates, an officer out of LAPD and, and really, you know, something that Nancy Reagan leaned into. So of course her, her husband at the time, President Reagan, Ronald Reagan really endorsed it as well. But you go back to the high-end Xers and, um, and the boomers and they had Nixon. Nixon started his war on drugs in 71. And then you go all the way back to Henry Anslinger back in, in the early 30s, and he had his war on drugs. So it's something that's been around for a century. So no matter what generation you speak to, I'd say, uh, you know, pretty much from millennial up, you know, there's this stigma and tabooism that exists. And to be able to eliminate that and desensitize people from this stigma of it's a bad plant, it's the devil's lettuce, it's, mm-hmm. it's associated with laziness and, you know, all the rest of it, that that has been really rewarding for me. And I'm thankful for the companies that allow me to to have that voice and still obviously endorse and promote the, the company and products that I represent, but allowing me to be open and vocal as an advocate. You know, it's just been, it's been super rewarding for me. Yeah, no, I, I totally acknowledge that. And I want to congratulate you too, because I know you were a part of the paragraphic documentary that just recently <laughs> came out on, on 420. So could you tell us a little bit about that for some of the folks who maybe haven't had a chance to tune in yet? Yeah, definitely. So that was something I came across a uh, paragraphic. They had done a piece on van conversion, which again, being a bit of a gearhead, some interesting things come up in my feed yeah. on YouTube, a lot of automotive, a lot of cannabis. And so I was really impressed with how the team there was able to tell stories because that's really what Mm. it comes down to. And myself being a writer, I still write a monthly column for MG and I've been writing since uh, 2005, just as an outlet, not, not as a career, just as a moonlighting thing I enjoy in my free time. And so I've always been very respectful of those that are able to properly tell stories. Mm. And I saw that with Paragraphic and ended up working with Strons on another project uh, once coming on board here at Grove Bags. And I approached him, I said, hey, you know, there's there's a lot of documentaries and there's a lot of short videos and sizzle reels around this space and this community and this industry, but no one's telling the true story of some of the challenges and the things that it takes in order to move this, this boulder forward mm-hmm. in, and specifically in this country. And so I, I essentially pitched the idea of, you know, him coming out with his team. I said, I can help you, you know, press passes and make sure you get into all the right events and functions and and have the right people to interview and speak with. Uh, but if you could come up for uh, for Weed Week, which is the week that MJ Biz falls into every year out in Vegas, I would love to have you all out and, and kind of essentially be like an executive producer of sorts. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was all about it. He was fully on board with it. Thankfully, you know, had a few sponsors come on board, including Grove Bags, uh, Paxium, and Sorting Robotics. 
And, uh, and it was just a, a great piece. You know, it really did tell the true story of it's not all, you know, profit and parties, you know, mm-hmm. there's so much more in the people. And this is something I voiced in, in the documentary because myself, I was in it as well, is that I've met some of the most passionate and some of the most, just the hardest workers that, that I've ever come across. And, and even coming from .com and digital media, like there were some hustlers and hard workers in that space too. Yeah. But there's something different because, you know, in that blossoming disruptive industry that was .com and digital media, it still came down to getting a, a certain group of individuals rich. You know, it was mm. still, it still came back to like when I worked for auto trader, it was the Cox sisters and the Cox sisters had this huge portfolio of, of companies here. It's something bigger than any of us. And there's definitely some people who have made a solid brand for themselves, but that's where I've been vocal about. It. It's not so much building my brand as it is erasing that stigma and building mm-hmm. the norm of what is cannabis for the future. And I meet a lot of people that are the same way. They're very humble. They're very selfless. They just want to move things forward and, and normalize this space. And so I, I think that really is what was successful with the documentary. It's just there were people that were, were saying, hey, there, we need all kinds of people. There's jobs. I mean, at the time, we were referencing 350 Now there's over 400,000 uh, positions in the industry. But we need all kinds of people, all kinds of passionate individuals that have talent from all different spaces. And you don't have to consume. I mean, we did a study when I was at Weed Maps. We had about 400 employees at the time and 33, almost 34%, it was 33.8% of, of our employees did not consume cannabis, but they were very passionate about the movement and about the people behind the movement and how it helps people from a medical standpoint. And, and even recreational users, we found, we did another study where 67% of people that purchase cannabis um, on the adult use, on the recreational side still said that one of the reasons they consume cannabis was to help with sleep. Well, that's still therapeutic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's still for all intents and purposes. I still see that as a medical attribute more so than just purely a quote unquote recreational attribute of the plant. So, so yeah, it's, it was a fun project and, and look forward to more in the future. I'm sure. Yeah, that's, that's cool. And I know you mentioned that grow, uh, grow bags was a sponsor and right now you're kind of, you know, heading up the the team of CFO over at grow bags. So I wanted to to chat with you a little bit about what you guys are up to there. Um, and it's interesting because you and I have connected before and, and you've mentioned to me how it's not just a matter of, hey, we're in the packaging space. We're a technology first company that happens yes. to support packaging. So super interesting uh, thought process there and the way you kind of broke that down. So for listeners, can you also, can you tell us a little bit about Grove Bags and what you guys are doing and kind of your process and approach to packaging? Because I think it's super, super unique, but I know you could do a way better job of explaining it than I can <laughs> right now. Yeah, I definitely can. So this this is a phenomenal company. You know, I've worked for companies that, you know, they they didn't come from this community. They didn't come from this industry. In many instances, the industry found them. You know, they had a solution or something that was a fit. And so they transitioned over here. Love Grove Bags because our CEO and the individuals that helped found and that were here from the beginning, they came from this community. I mean, my my CEO, you know, Jack Grover, um, i.e. Grove Bags, you know, he was a caregiver for his older brother who has cerebral palsy. And so, you know, he is a medical advocate first. And that's where he found this technology was, hey, there needs to be a solution to properly cure and store this, this flower. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the time it was just old school. And, and and I'm one of those guys as a grower. I used to use mason jars and, and just do the old school, you know, methodology towards uh, post-harvest. And so this company, yes, definitely technology. The way I compare it is uh, people are like, well, how does it really make a difference? The plastic bag, because I used to get, 
my weed off the street, a dime <laughs> bag in a plastic, you know, Ziploc bag. So people kind of reference it. They're like, is it really any better? And I explain, well, have you ever gone into the grocery store and put together a meal last minute and you pick up a bag of pre-chopped salad? Have you ever asked yourself how that salad is in the perfect preserved state, still crispy, you know, still green, still vibrant, not wilted, not yellow? Like, yeah, I just figured, you know, that they, it's just a high enough turn to where the new products coming in day in day out. I'm like, no, oftentimes, you know, that product, that, that pre-made salad will sit on the shelf one to two weeks. It's because of the technology and the packaging that allows that to exist. It's not carbon dioxide flushed. It's, it's not nitro flushed or argon flushed. It's, um, you know, there, there's no manipulation of that biomass that is that mm-hmm. lettuce, carrots, celery, et cetera. It's the way in which it's packaged. And so that's what we do is we create a technology that is perfect for this specific biomass because cannabis is very unique. You know, it, unlike other products, uh, you know, the microbials can pop off when you hit that 65% relative humidity threshold. So you need to keep the moisture at the right, at the right place, but you also need to keep the oxygen in the atmosphere in the right state as well. Or else oxidation and, and all these things compromise the potency, the quality and consistency of the flower itself. So that's where our technology comes in. And the fact that it is applied to packaging is where I say, you know, we're technology first and packaging second. So um, those that are advocates and and fans, they get it, they appreciate it. And it's, it's really unique because these followers that we have, these, these customers, these clients, they are so in love with the product because it isn't just about the quality and potency. It saves them time and money. They're not having, and, and, and I can vouch for this too. You know, I, like most guys, I would, take down, I, I would bucket, I would, or I'm sorry, I'd hang it and, and dry it for a few weeks and I'd bucket, you know, trim it and then put it into jars and have to babysit those jars. To, and I'm just talking about like a pound, pound and a half. I'm just a you know three plant home grower here in California. But that's still something that took 20 minutes, a half an hour out of my life every day for two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. Now for me to be able to put it into this bag and obviously have it all trim, ready to go, that right relative humidity, put it into the bag and just set it and forget it, you know, as Ron Papil used to say, right? And I put it in, not only do I cure it, but I can also age, age it in the bag too, which is something that's not really a thing here in the States yet, but you go and meet with growers in say Italy, which they're very familiar with, with wine and cheese and other things that take fermentation and aging as a process. And that's where they find the highest quality is by going through that process. And we've done a study. We just did a long-term study with a third-party lab based out here by me in Santa Barbara County. And we found that the optimal percentage by way of potency for both cannabinoids and terpenes occurs at the two-month mark. So Hmm. a lot of people are curing for two weeks. And yes, that makes a huge impact. That's great. But if you really want to allow these, these elements to mature and get to their prime, it really takes a few months. And again, a lot of people don't know this. And, and this is why we're getting ready. To, we just pushed out the executive summary last week, but we're going to be sharing a series of white papers that really helps people understand. Because everything that everyone's known up till now is kind of wives' tales. It's just kind of like, well, this is what I think you do. You know, snap the sticks, pinch the buds. That's how you know it's ready for the next step. Or if it starts changing color, that's how you know it's ready to take down. Like everything has very much been just this you know, what's been passed down generation to generation and no one's taken a scientific look or approach towards it. And we're not alone. There's a a, a department up at UC Davis that's doing extensive studies and not just on cultivation, but but on drying, on curing, on storing, 
um, on potencies. So there are um, actually colleges and universities there they're doing the same thing that we are as far as trying to learn more about how to optimize the plant to its to make it the best it can possibly be. Yeah, that's so cool. So I I actually had no clue, and this might be common knowledge, but I had no clue that you really should be waiting about two months for the plant's terpenes to really reach that optimal peak state for for consumers. And so is this something is this something maybe that some of the more craft consumers are weary of? when it comes to these larger scale cannabis operations where it's like, hmm, I think they may be cutting corners just because they want to, you know, get the money in the door as, as quick as yeah. possible. Is that even a, is that a thing or? That is a thing. That's interesting. And, and, you know, we are a part of SOPs, everything from, from the home grower to the scaled up million square foot plus operation. But it is one thing that is a challenge for the larger mm -hmm. operations is to your point, you know, they're working up against the clock in turning these crops in order to, to meet those goals and, and in many instances to pay the investors, you know, and that's mm -hmm. applicable both here in the States and in places like Canada, where you do have those individuals that you have accountability to at the end of the day. So some of the practices that they do, um, just from studies that I've been associated with, not just at this company, but at Green Bros and in other places, is that, yes, sometimes um, you can lose some of that, that potency and quality in doing mass production. And it's unfortunate, but it's applicable to anything. You know, this is one of those crops that is not a linear scale, right? So with cotton or with corn, if you want to add another acre or hectare, you just add more hours to the farmer's day because he needs to obviously take the machinery and equipment to that additional acre and hectare. Everything else is fairly, it all goes into the silo. It's all stored for processing, et cetera. They know their timelines. They know their temperatures, their humidities, but it can easily be replicated and scaled up. It does become a challenge with cannabis because growing is only half the battle. That That's really just half the process. The other half is how it is dried, how it is cured, to your point, how it's trimmed, how it's bucked. I mean, those are elements. So some of the larger operations, because they're trying to be as efficient as possible, in many instances, they'll trim it wet, which is something that's not recommended because that is starting to compromise, potentially compromise those trichomes because they're so fragile when they're first taken down mm -hmm. from the plant right, from its life force. And then also there's some um, argument uh, in the growing society between just drying on bud or drying on plant. So a lot of us are more fans of whole plant hanging, as we call it, or even stem hanging. Mm -hmm. So that's keeping it connected to that life force in order to get as much possible out of it before moving on to the next stage. And then a lot of us also who are fans of that are fans of drying uh, and then moving on to the trimming, uh, which is a semi-wet or, or dry trim. Some people just stereotype and call it a dry trim before going on to the cure. So all these processes play a factor, but even the way it's trimmed. I mean, I saw one operation that they had wedding cake. A lot of people don't know one of the reasons the cultivar uh, wedding cake is called that is because the, the trichomes have this frosty kind of finish on the outside, just this really nice white frostiness to it. And they're putting it through an automated trimmer that used a vacuum system. Well, the, I saw the buds going in green on one side, or I'm sorry, going in with that white frostiness on one side, coming out green on the other. Oh, no. So I know that there was a trichome loss. And I looked at the filters from this big behemoth machine. Yeah. And that's where all the keef was, as we call it, right? That's where all the trichomes were. So you know that you're sacrificing and compromising that potency and quality, all in the name of rapid processing. So yeah, there's there's a lot of debate on on how you dry and how you process how you trim in many instances you know how you cure how you store all the rest of it 
But, you know, that's that's the things that you have in in a blossoming market that, you know, again, people are trying to bring SOPs and GMP standards into play and and find the most efficient way to put out the best product. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And then and then Lance, you've been around at so many different um, companies, but even cannabis companies as well. So one thing over your time, I'm curious if you've noticed anything um, sort of as like a common denominator of companies that position themselves for long-term success and they do it well. Have you noticed anything that tends to be a common denominator uh, over the course of the years? I have, and it's things that, and this is, I joke around, but at some point I'll get, I'll get to it in my career where I'm actually able to write a few of these books that are in my head, but that's one book that I want to do is a book on business because I have seen the right and the wrong way. You know, Hmm. a lot of people back in my days and I've evolved in my career and there's a method to the madness, you know, started out in sales and then segued from sales to operations, that next step of the relationship. And then from operations, um, a little bit dabbled in logistics and then segued into marketing and business development, kind of make my way around the horn to be a well-rounded CEO at some point in my career. But some of the things I've noticed is, you know, back in, in the 2000s when I was in sales, I was doing consultative selling, which was not a very popular thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Very much, you know, is about the hard selling, hate to say it, but like the car salesman approach of, you know, that fear right. factor, hey, get it now while you can, or who really makes the buying decision or, you know, those kind of approaches that are just far too aggressive and younger generations won't tolerate, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So I've seen that as a weakness. A linear that I've seen on the positive is companies that put the community first. And it's a bit of that Simon Sinek, you know, starting with the why and then working your way out. Right. So why do we do what we do? And so coming into a company again like this, where you have not just an entity, but an individual that has core values that are relevant to the community it serves is huge. Mm Because I've been with a company that they've had that focus in another category and then they've tried to come over and pivot to this category and they fail because Mm -hmm. people in this community they see right through it. They see when someone's in it for the money or for that that revenue gain versus to really help this community be successful and advance forward. So that's one thing I discovered in my career is uh, I myself, it's it's not so much of, of me being asked to move on as me voluntarily moving on mm-hmm. from companies that aren't a good match because if their core values and their, and their, goal, their cultural goals towards supporting the community that they're associated with aren't there, then there's not a place for me because I just put too much of my passion into what I do. So that's something I see has been success in this space. The companies that are still around that are doing it for the right reasons are here. Mm -hmm. The ones that aren't, they're the ones that we've seen cycle out. And there's been hundreds of them over. I mean, after so many hundreds of trade shows and events and expos I've done over the years, there's some great brands I've seen come and go. And it's unfortunate. You're like, why? Their branding was on point. Their colors were on point. Their messaging, they're this, they're that. Yeah, but there's something that's intangible that wasn't on point, that didn't exist, that didn't resonate with the consumer or the community that caused them to not be around. So that's something I'd be mindful for anyone that's getting into the space, be in it for the right reasons, because this is 100%. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, don't get me wrong, but it is very much 100% a community first. And every industry started that way, real estate, Mm -hmm. medical, automotive.com. It all started out as a community before it became an industry but the community still runs things in, in this category of business. Yeah. And I, I think to your point, which is so true, and I've even witnessed it myself firsthand, I, I, I hope <laughs> and I'm predicting that the community aspect within the industry 
is going to stay and stick around for a very long time, if not never yes. go away when it comes to cannabis, just because there's so much more to it than just a profit and money to be made. There are legitimate people that have either had to sit down and do time, came back out and are still in it. Jason Washington, for example, of yeah, culture, who was in, exactly. in the, in the documentary, um, tons of people who, you know, are using it for therapeutic medicinal reasons that they used to, you know, sit down in the dare classrooms. And now they're like, Whoa, you know, can't believe I was taught that when this, you know, damn near saved my life. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of people that almost feel indebted to the plant. And I say that in a, in a good way Oh yeah, um, yeah and forever grateful to it that I hope that the community aspect around the plant never goes away for that reason. Um, just a, just a random thought that kind of popped in, but I just wanted to share that with you. No, you're, you're, it's, it's an excellent point. A great observation, especially with your time and your focus in this space for you to glean something like that now so soon. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we're seeing, you know, there's, there's little nuances that are happening, both the micro and macro that people aren't really kind of stopping and paying attention to. And I'll give an example is Canada. So Canada, you know, they legalize medical, a lot of people don't know this, they legalized medical use. And, and a lot of it was centric to the same reason why San Francisco, because again, a lot of people don't know this, the city and county that is San Francisco, they actually established uh, Prop P back in 1990. And um, Dennis Perone, an individual who's very much an activist in the space, and uh, Brownie and Mary were really leading that effort. And they were doing it because they found that this plant health therapeutically, especially those with HIV and AIDS that were suffering mm -hmm. some you know, lack of appetite, lack of sleep. I mean, a lot of challenges that um, traditional or Western medicine could not help with, whereas, you know, Eastern or, or herbal or holistic medicine was helping with. So a lot of people aren't aware, but Canada passed their medical program back in 2000. Fast forward to October 17th of 2018. That's when they started their adult use program. The first G7 country in the world now, we, we love what happened in South America because that's technically where the first country came online. But, but Canada really made a big splash. When Canada first came on, approximately 70% of the flour was produced to that market. And not, not a huge market. I mean, they're technically their population is smaller than, than my home state, right? They're <laughs> 36, 38,000. Now they're up to 38,000. They've had some great influx lately. But still, it's the largest, second largest uh, landmass as far as countries go in the world, but, but not a big population. But 70% of that flour that was supplied to that market was coming from large-scale producers, these large LPs. Now, fast forward, and I was just up there in January at Lifton Co. Vancouver, which was a, a little uh, bittersweet because that was the last international show I went to before the world shut down in mm. 2020. So to be back there, right, um, three years later. And interesting thing was they had this huge pivot where, and we, we knew about this, we heard about this, people that are industry leaders and following what's really happening at a global, not just a local scale. But they had this anomaly occur where the consumer was really starting to make a choice and an influence with their billfold, right? So they were pretty much voting on what they preferred with where they spent their money. Mm -hmm. That 70% pivoted to going towards craft growers. So now almost 70% of the flour that is produced and, and supplied and I had someone reach out to me at this stat, like, where'd you get this stat? I'm like, this is the individual that shared it on stage at Lift & Co. He represents this group. He has the information. He tracks all of it because it's all open accessible through Health Canada in Canada. Mm -hmm. So this is all very much public information. But those people, they really found that the quality 
And the community was more so represented from those individuals that were looking at things from a scaled standpoint, not from a, a huge world domination standpoint. And it's really interesting because I think that is exactly to your point, the community will prevail. That's mm -hmm. something where it can't be suppressed by the corporate because the community is so strong and powerful. And again, going back to them being in it for the right reason in themselves, in many instances, being consumers. I have friends that are growers that say, if I produce something and I wouldn't smoke it, I don't sell it. Hmm. You would never hear a company on NASDAQ. Yeah, not <laughs> because, a chance. Hey, we, we, we put out this. I mean, let's just flashback <clears throat> to the one of the biggest marketing anomalies as a marketer. I love some of the old, you know, where's the beef campaign and, and one that's a really outliers, the new Coke campaign, right? New Coke, we always joke around as marketers. Either that was extremely methodical and someone knew exactly what they were doing, or that was the biggest mistake in history that ended up being a good thing, right? They came out with New Coke, 84, 85, and New Coke just bombed. You know, they're trying to compete with Pepsi because Pepsi, for the first time in history, surpassed them in market share, which was huge to Coke because Coke was the, the industry leader. Came out with New Coke is a little bit sweeter, a little bit more like Pepsi, absolutely failed. But they still had to push it out because even in the test markets, when it did so-so, they're like, we've invested so much time and money. You would never have a company like Coke go, you know what? We've already invested 10 million. Let's pull back because we wouldn't even drink this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. that just doesn't happen at that scale. But you have a craft grower. It's like, this is not up to my standards. I'll sacrifice that investment and that cost in order to make sure I put out the best possible product. And again, we're seeing that happen in Canada. And a lot of people aren't paying attention because that is relevant. You know, that's something that's going to occur in other markets, I, I feel. And to your point, I don't think the community is going anywhere because of it. Yeah, no, I'm. That's it's all so interesting. I'm I'm totally with you there, um, Lance. One last question that I love to always ask guests before we wrap up the show, and that is, sure. being in cannabis, have you picked up any golden nuggets along the way that you feel you maybe wouldn't have learned or experienced or picked up by working in a more traditional space? It's actually quite an excellent question. There, there's some things that I've learned that. It's interesting because there's individuals, especially if you're on social media, they're pitching this out and presenting these ideologies as if there's something new or there's something special. Mm. But there's something that we go, that we come across and, and we go up against on a regular basis in this category. And it is things like, you know, never be closed minded, always be innovating, always be looking forward to the future, you know, persevere. They, just these, their life mantras that again, people are kind of pitching and presenting in mainstream as, you know, this is a new way of thinking, this new idea. No, this is everyday life in cannabis. Like yeah. you're constantly having to pivot. I thought when I was in digital media, you know, we were floored because they would change the, the rules, the stipulations, the rules of the game, the rules of engagement. They change them on the regular. You know, Facebook would all of a sudden have some sort of rule. Google, um, you know, the trade desk, whomever we, we worked with. You know, all of a sudden the, the the game, the rules of the game were constantly changing. And so the way you played the game constantly changed. And I'm like, surely this is just an anomaly because this is a disruptive space. This is a, a new space. You know, it, it's definitely something that was a game changer. Then I came into cannabis. And I mean, some of the stories you hear, man, I mean, again, Canada, great examples come out of Canada, BC specifically, you know, the local rules and regulations that were um, proposed by the municipality all the windows had to be fogged in, in a cannabis store because they didn't want that, that 
exposure to the general public mm-hmm. like like there's some sort of you know people ripping bongs and stuff in the, which none of that <laughs> happens right it's very professional if anything it's a bunch of apple stores that sell cannabis kind of vibe and then all of the stores went in they made this change nope it needs to be fully clear there needs to be that pure visibility so we don't see anything going you know we want to make sure there isn't any shenanigans going on behind the facade it's things like that where or even talking to people in packaging. And it, we don't come across it too long, too much because we do all of our homework. But in packaging, I've had people who are like, yeah, you know, I ordered several thousand dollars worth of packaging. And then this regulation changed. You know, every once in a while it happens. We did have that with with uh, Jason as an example. Jason, you know, has an operation in Montana. Montana, they changed one element when they shifted from medical to adult, where no longer do you have a medical reference in the uh, legalese that's required on your packaging. Just a little nuanced thing that they forgot to kind of send a memo out to, to mm-hmm. those that were licensed. And thankfully, we caught it before the packaging went to production right. or else that would have been thousands of dollars that would have been wasted because of a nuanced you know, political thing mm-hmm. that was going on in the background. So constantly being able to pivot, never settling, always being that individual that's on their toes and constantly educating yourself. That's one thing that I, I mean, I fully embrace it. Some people, it makes their head spin. But I fully embrace it. I love it. And that's something that I think is very nuanced to this space because it is an evolution. You know, it's not a revolution. We're not going back to the way things were because the things were never like this even before prohibition occurred a century ago. But it is an evolution to get to where we want to be. And many people do feel, and you heard it in the documentary, oh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. We're just scratching the surface. You know, things are going to change 100% from what they are today, tomorrow. A lot of those things are very true. You know, the, the dust has not settled. Matter of fact, it's stirred up even more so than ever yeah. <laughs> right now. That's one thing that I've definitely taken away from being in this space. And a lot of people have gotten burnt out from it. They're, they've been waiting for legalization to occur on a national level. And that's been drug out. I, I literally just put out an article on MG talking about that. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you got to persevere, man. If you're not dedicated and you don't lean into issues versus running away from them, Probably not the space for you. <laughs> There's probably something that's a little bit more secure and a little bit more stable that you'd be comfortable doing than than working in this space. Yeah, great insights, great insights, Lance. I appreciate all that. So I know you write, uh, you contribute for MG on a on a regular basis. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about Grove Brags, what's the best way for them to do so? Yeah, definitely. So as far as reaching out to the company. Uh, grow bags across the board. So grow bags on IG, grow bags at LinkedIn, grow bags at Twitter. Um, if you want to reach out to me personally, my handle in most of those places is 805Lance. Rather, you want to connect on IG. Uh, LinkedIn is is uh, Lance C. Lambert, or just go to lancelambert.com. Take you right there. Um, I'm an open book. I'm always accessible. So that's one thing I'd always share with people when I do interviews and such is you know, feel free to call up. I I really love helping people and making an impact. And some of the success stories that I've been fortunate enough to be associated with as far as individuals transitioning into this space or trying to level up in this space, that's rewarding for me. I I never want anything in return except for seeing success. And and Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I've always been about. Uh, But yeah, definitely do feel free to reach out. And uh, for those that are in the industry, we're always out on the show doing the circuit. We'll be at Hall of Flowers pretty soon. Um, We're always at MJ Biz every year. Um, we're always out there in the field too. So I definitely implore you to stop by, say hi, pick up some samples, give it a try. It's it's definitely a game changer too. Awesome. Yeah. Can't wait to see you out there at MJ BizCon this year. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Major Journey Podcast. We will catch you all next time.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.